1: It's time for a different take on
2: spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter.
3: Why, hello, everybody, and welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter, kind of a spiritual journeyman kind of guy and media producer. I've run a website with online courses called youthrivehere.com. Joining me today as my special guest co-host, is author Royce Christian. Hi. <laughs> Royce is an actor, director, and the author of the book "Scripting the Life You Want: Manifest Your Dreams with Just Pen and Paper." You know what? I've been using your book, Royce. I love it. It's it's been going great. I, I you know I must love it because you've been on the show like a couple of times now.
4: I, I feel honored. I like I love that you love my book. I love that you are using it, and hopefully, it's it's working and not uh, causing upheaval. <laughs>
3: It's working. It's I'm, I'm finding some good good stuff on it. I'm really I'm really intrigued. I do my uh, scripting every morning for for a while now. I've been doing that.
4: I know it's probably been about six weeks since we first uh, talked about the book when it first came out. That's good. All right. Well, you should be seeing some really good stuff
3: really soon. I, I am. Awesome. I am. I am. Good. All right. So, how did I rope you into being a co-host today?
4: <laughs> I don't know, but I'm so happy you did. I don't know if I'll be able to fill Sarah's shoes, but I will do my best to be, a, uh, I guess, a decent enough replacement temporarily for this one.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what are you being up to? Uh, I know you have like tons of emails and things like that. I know since we were you're...
4: joking off. Up- Uh, fair. Yeah, most people are binge watching shows. I'm binge catching up with literally like 400 emails. So that's been pretty much my life, which is awesome because people are reading the book and they want to talk about it. And I'm just trying to reply to everybody. So uh, the only problem is I have friends like you who write me an email and in my head, I want to give you a full long, you know, well thought out reply and then it's two weeks later. So working on getting all that organized. How about you? What have you been up to?
3: Well, I've been keeping busy, you know, doing the video courses and having adventures uh, in life. There's a new course,
4: right? I saw an email.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: What's it about? Uh, I genuinely about... don't know for people out there watching. I'm actually curious this wasn't set up. <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: it's about uh, discovering your, your audacious purpose with uh, Judy Morley. But I can't go into it because I don't want to make this an advertisement, but I okay, appreciate okay, the okay. question. It sounds exciting. I appreciate the question. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for dueling inspirational quotes? I think so. Well, we'll go first, though. (laughs) I will. I will go first, and we will give it a shot, and uh, we will let the audience decide who wins. Because you know, when you're dueling quotes, it's always up in the air. It's like a contest. It's like saber, you know, lightsabers duel and that sort of thing. (laughs) Which, which is in the spiritual light that it should be. Correct. Correct. (laughs) All right. Here's mine. The most beautiful experience we can have is the, is the mysterious, the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. That okay. is attributed to Albert Einstein.
4: Okay. I have live well, two, but I'll pick my, I'll do my favorite one, which is it takes less time to do things right than to explain why you did it wrong, and that's by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow.
3: Well, that is certainly true. Yeah,
4: I think so. I try to do that. I think it's pretty uh, motivating. But I don't know. Yours is really good, too. I'll we'll to let the audience decide.
3: Well, do you think want to know what the other
4: one was? It's not really inspirational, yes. but it's kind of funny. Okay, sure. it's Maya Angelou. And I want to make sure I say it right. I've learned that you can tell a lot about a person by the way she or he handles these three things. a rainy day, lost luggage, and tangled
3: Christmas tree lights. I think it's <laughs> accurate. I think you're right. I think you're right.
4: Yeah, but I like the Longfellow one better.
3: <laughs> well, one of the things I uh, I I felt uh, I felt good about bringing you on for this one is that uh, you know you're kind of a science geek kind of guy. Yeah. Yes, and, I know. Uh, so
4: it's perfect.
3: <laughs> and uh, we're gonna have uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake on the show. Um, and uh, you know what's interesting is that uh, I I think it's important that we not tell him that I almost failed sci- uh, physics. You know. So <laughs> yeah, probably we'll just. We'll, that we'll, gloss, we'll gloss by that so i think it's going to be a really interesting conversation
4: i'm really excited yeah as long as you don't reveal that you didn't do amazing in science uh but you like science you're you're interested yes. i mean we 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 talk about it so i think <laughs> i mean it could have fooled me right tell everybody but uh, i'm excited the book is really good it's very it's it's a very big book but it's a it's a pretty quick read which is always a good sign i think at least that's for, the,
3: there's definitely good stuff in there good stuff in there yeah all right i can't uh, i can't wait are you ready to get into the episode yeah let's do it awesome he's back revan raymond anderson joins us with raymond's corner
0: how many of us have ever had someone say you should be ashamed of yourself young man You should be ashamed of yourself, young lady. Or we'll say, oh, man, did you hear about such and such? Oh, man, that is such a shame. Like they lost their business. That is such a shame. Have we ever noticed how much shame flows through our consciousness, flows through the manner in which we think and feel? Just the way we show up. It's a lot of shame. Have we ever really thought about why? I mean, there's one thing to be accountable. To feel that this is something that was my responsibility. But things like guilt? Should I feel guilty? Should I feel ashamed? And I mean, simply because there are a lot of people who place shame upon people from the LGBTQ plus community. You should be ashamed for being gay. You should be ashamed for being transgender. You should be ashamed. But why? How many people from a a fundamental spiritual practice, whether that's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, etc., are made to feel guilt and shame for not measuring up to a code of ethics, a bar of holiness? But what does it really do? I mean... Does, the, does feeling ashamed really help us to elevate? Does feeling guilt really make us evolve? Really? I mean, maybe it's time for us to reassess just simple beliefs about shame and guilt, blame, and start thinking more in terms of accountability and responsibility and more effective ways of being an effective steward Of our lives, our relationships, our money. So rather than saying, I feel guilty for having indulged in this meal, which costs more than my budget will allow, simply saying, but I did this because I felt that I wanted to reward myself and take ownership of and accountability for And if we, quote-unquote, wasted the money and, and, uh, what is it called, we went on a spending spree, then simply sit back and say, well, I take accountability that what I did was not the most effective way of being a financial steward of my resources. And then choose differently. But when we go into guilt, what we tend to do is then find more to be guilty about. Because we then comfort eat or we do something else. Some people drink, some people do food, some people overwork. Like there are all kinds of ways that we medicate. But what if we simply learned how to be our own best friend? Learn how to love ourselves. Learn how to nurture ourselves. Learn how to appreciate ourselves. You know, we talk about in in the stock market and finances, what you appreciate, appreciates. So, what if we appreciated the love that we are? What if we appreciated how good we are? What if we appreciated everything about us? Even, even the idea of when we do miss the mark and make a mistake, we appreciate the idea that we recognize the mistake and we can choose better. We can choose different. We can choose higher. What if we appreciated that? What if we let go of the idea of shame and guilt and blame and took on the mantle of being more effective stewards, loving ourselves, and being our own best friends. What if we did that this week? Love you.
3: Now here's Martha Creek with a Unity Moment.
1: Hi friends, it's Martha Creek, marthacreek.com. I'm taking a look at the teachings, the wisdom teachings of Jesus and a new perspective, perhaps for some of us, in transforming our heart and mind. Thank you for joining here today. We're on today's um, Beatitude number seven, which is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So this beatitude follows um, a logical consequence of all that has been laid out so far in the previous beatitudes. When our hearts are gentle, when our hearts are single, one, the purified heart, uh, the heart of purity, the one-heartedness, and gentled, and mostly and more importantly, when we tamed our animal instincts. And to the degree that we can tame our animal instincts, and I'm quoted as saying, we're just a hair above an animal, then that this is what it says, then only until that carnal aspect of ourselves, the lower regressive mind is tamed some, do we have any access to a higher mind, a mind of um, peacemaking. And to the degree that we can tame that, we become these peacemakers, we're no longer uh, swinging our swords and cutting things down into good or bad buckets. The, the simple binary system of filing things as good and bad, insiders and outsiders, and winning and losing. So it's a shift then, a radical shift in consciousness, so that when the field of vision has been unified, our inner being gets to come to rest, and that inner peace and our peaceability flows into the outer world. And only to the degree that we have an inner peace can it flow into the outer world as harmony, compassion, what, what we um, represent. So think about what it is that would bring um, your heart to rest. What would unify your one heart and what it would be like to consciously choose and to circuit break some of our animal instinctual patterned knee-jerk behaviors and absolutely, absolutely stay above the line in the higher cognitive, rational, innovative, creative, innovative uh, part of the higher part of our mind, in the upper room of our minds, if you would. What would stop you from day? For, for What would stop you today, friends? From letting your heart rest, be unified, and from that inner peaceability, open to flow, to offer that, to express that, and to be that in the world. I know who you are. I know who you are. I know what you are and I know how you serve. Be that. Love and blessings, MarthaCreek.com. And now it's time for our
3: interview. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist and the author of more than 90 90, technical papers and 14 books, including Science Set Free. After studying at Cambridge and Harvard Universities, he worked in India as a principal plant physiologist at the International Crops Research Institute, for the semi-arid tropics and lived for two years in the benedictine ashram of father is it bede griffith bead Bede griffith um from 2005 to 2010 he was director of the parrot warwick project for the study of unexplained human and animal abilities funded by trinity, trinity college cambridge he's currently a fellow of the institute of noetic sciences in california and of Shoemaker College in Dartington, Devon, UK. His latest book is Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Hi, Rupert. Rupert. Hi, Rupert. Hi, Rupert. Welcome to Big (laughs) Universe.
4: Rupert.
2: Hello.
3: It's wonderful to have you on.
2: Good to be with you.
3: So your work is fascinating, and I've been very interested in it for quite some time. Um, But I think one of the things we want to dive, what I would like to dive right into is, Um, Your definition of morphic resonance, um, what does that mean? Because I think it sets a stage for a lot of what you talk about in the book.
2: Morphic resonance is a kind of resonance across time between similar self-organizing systems. And what it's about is memory in nature. What I'm suggesting is that the whole universe has a kind of memory. um, That the so-called laws of nature are more like habits that each species has a kind of collective memory. Uh, Each individual draws upon it and contributes to it, a bit like Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Um, And morphic resonance is the process by which that memory takes place. It takes place on the basis of similarity. Resonance works on similarity, Um, and it's across time. Sometimes people say, well, if there's a memory in nature, where is it stored? And what I'm suggesting is that it isn't stored anywhere in the sense because stored is some, an activity in space, whereas memory is a relationship in time. It's a direct connection across time from the past to the present.
3: Wow, that's, that's incredible and fascinating. I'm really, really blown away by that. Um, now, your new book um, is uh, ways to go beyond why they work. And uh, it's kind of a sequel to your previous book, Science and Spiritual Practices. Um, Tell me about, well, you say that you believe that it's only through spiritual practices and direct experiences that we deepen our own connections with the more than human realms of consciousness. What do you mean by more than human realms of consciousness?
2: Well, I think that, you see, it contrasts with the standard materialist view. The standard materialist view, the common or garden view that's taught in universities and schools, in science classes, is that the whole universe is unconscious, and that consciousness emerged or evolved inside brains, reaching its highest development in the whole universe inside our heads. Um, So there is no consciousness beyond the human realm in that worldview. That's the standard scientific materialist worldview. But in um, a panpsychist view, um, the idea that nature is alive and there's consciousness throughout nature, there are many forms of consciousness in nature, both at small levels like electrons and things, but also in ecosystems, planets, planets solar systems galaxies and then of course in traditional religious views there's the idea that there are forms of consciousness uh, beyond all those there are spirits angels um, and then ultimately the consciousness of god or ultimate reality or the all um, that there's a consciousness underlying the whole of nature and permeating it now all of those levels beyond the human level are more than human And spiritual practices are about connecting uh, with the more-than-human realms. Um, So um, sometimes they might be, um, as I show in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, connecting with nature. um, uh, uh, Many people have mystical experiences in nature, outdoors, in landscapes, with trees, plants, animals, um, uh, the stars, and so on. Sometimes they're about through connecting through prayer. In every kind of prayer, uh, one invokes a spiritual being at a higher level than oneself. One starts the prayer with such an invocation. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hail Mary, full of grace. Or whatever the prayer is. Uh, so all of these are ways of connecting with more than human realms of consciousness.
4: Well, I have a question. Um, this is really interesting to me, and it just ties into what happened a week ago. So I, uh, my, my mom and I are both really big fans of yours, and I did not tell her that I'd be co-hosting, I'd be filling in and co-hosting and interviewing you this week. So I took her to an appointment last week, and we were in the office, and a friend of ours who's the a doctor there started talking about something, and she brought up your name. And I was only half listening they had this whole conversation about Rupert Sheldrake. So I wasn't even 100% putting everything together. We get in the car and I brought her back over here. We're neighbors. We live next to each other. And my fiance brought me, he brought me a copy of your book had just been delivered. And I opened it up and she said, are you kidding me? This is Rupert Sheldrake's book. We just had this whole conversation. I went, oh my goodness, it's like a morphic resonance. But even weirder, you literally, in everything you just said, covered, each sentence of my questions I had written out for you. So is that some, I mean, for people out there listening, I wish you could see my computer because it literally, Literally said, I, I had, what's the, the connection between Morphic Resonance and Carl Jung's Collective Unconsciousness. I have a question here about the psychic connections people have with animals you describe in your book. And then my next question was going to be what you just said, which was about prayer. Is that what's happening then? Because this is, this is wild for me, even. Is this, is this? How would you explain that to, to, to me? I don't have anything to ask you now
2: because you covered it. <laughs> Well, um I'm not sure that I have an instant <laughs> it's remarkable uh, that that happened.
4: I want to send it to you it's it is the most fascinating thing I was sitting here I'm just sitting here looking at it and I mean honestly right now at the point that you hit uh, it, it was in the exact order and my next question was going to be how you talk about prayer and um, I love that you tell people to pray. For guidance on how to pray, that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask um, if you could expound on that a little bit. I uh, maybe you were yes. going to. <laughs> um,
2: no, well, that's. A, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I, the reason that in my book Ways to Go Beyond, um, I have a chapter on petitionary prayer, is because I think for many people today, petitionary prayer, asking for things, is not what they do. Whenever, whenever I give talks and I ask how many people meditate. It's usually three or four times as more people meditate than pray. Whereas 50 years ago, if you'd asked that question, most people would have prayed, very few would have meditated. And a lot of atheists meditate as well. Um, so meditation is not any longer it's something just confined to people who identify as religious or even as spiritual. Um, the, the So, I personally think that the the difference between these two is one of the things I try and bring out in my book. Meditation is a bit like breathing in. It's about like withdrawing from a preoccupation with things in the world, close your eyes or withdraw into a quiet space. And then by concentrating either on the breathing as in mindfulness meditation or a mantra, uh, as in mantra meditation, Um, you create another focus for your attention and that constant stream of thoughts that's going through our minds all the time associated with the brain region called the default mode network. um, uh, We sort of detach from that to some degree and the thoughts can keep going through our minds, but we're no longer completely absorbed in them. And the idea is to let go of them. They don't hang on to them, let them go. So it's a kind of withdrawal from thought and discursive activity. Um, And then sometimes there are times when the thoughts disappear and there's a sense of joy, unity, um, and often a kind of mystical type of state. Now, prayer is, or petitionary prayer, is almost exactly the opposite. You start by connecting with the spiritual reality through the invocation you know, to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saints, the angels, or in other religions a whole range of ways of doing it. All religions have their own forms of praying, but all of them involve connecting with a spiritual being at a higher level than ourselves, and then directing intention towards things that really concern one in the world, you know, the sickness of a loved person, or something you're worried about, or a need for protection, or a fear that you're dealing with. And so there's a sense in which um, meditation uh, goes from the outside to the inside, like breathing in, and prayer goes from the inside, the spiritual realm, to the outside, directing intentions towards things that really concern one. And so I'm not saying one's right and the other's wrong. And the reason I compare it to breathing is that you need both. Um, I personally... I meditate in the mornings and I pray in the evenings. But a lot of people uh, confuse prayer and meditation. And I think by only by meditating, if that's their only practice, then uh, it's a withdrawal from concerns of the world and doesn't really address them in a way that prayer does. And I think prayer links our spiritual life to our everyday concerns. Prayer is usually about quite everyday things, fears, ill health, etc., and I think it's very important for the spiritual life to be connected to the embodied world we live in. Well,
3: we right, have about,
2: best explanation. We <laughs> have about
3: two minutes before we have to take a break, but can you just paraphrase what a spiritual practice is to you? What is a spiritual practice?
2: It's a practice where, where you do something practical. It could be meditating, it could be praying, could be fasting, it could be going to a place in nature to connect with it, could be singing or chanting, could be going on a the pilgrimage. These are all practices I discuss in my book. They're things you do, they're practices, but they're practices you do uh, that have a goal beyond the merely mundane. They're practices designed to connect you with a... Uh, uh, a spiritual realm, a realm that goes beyond our own consciousness. Um, And what happens as a result of these practices are experiences. Um, They're not about belief, they're not about dogmas, they're about experiences. And I think that all religions actually start primarily from experience, not about belief. I mean, Jesus didn't recognize his relationship with God through studying in a seminary. It happened at the moment of his baptism. um, The Buddha didn't become enlightened through doing a PhD. Um, These are about experiences. And so these spiritual practices are ways in which people can arrive at these experiences, and they have scientifically measurable effects, which is one of the points I make in my books.
3: Wonderful. We'll be right back on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
4: Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter
2: look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter.
3: Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. This is Jim Lefter. I'm with Royce Christian, and we're interviewing Rupert Sheldrake. So, Rupert, I know we're going to dive into the seven practices that you talk into your new uh, talk about in your new book, but I'm I'm curious about your journey because you started in kind of a conventional Christian upbringing, and then you you became an atheist, and mm. then something changed after that. Tell me about your journey a little bit.
2: Well, I have to make this brief, but um, I I was raised by Methodist parents who lived in a Methodist community in my hometown, um, which was loving, kind and I really appreciate what I learned from them, um, including the power of music. My father, my grandfather was the church organist and my uncle. I'm an organist too. Um, I was sent to an Anglican boarding school, so I got a different kind of religious background from that with much more ritual and liturgy and uh, choral singing. I was in the choir. Um, But my science teachers more or less converted me to atheism because, for them, science equaled atheism. So I bought into this whole package. It's a standard view and countless people undergo this process of being converted to atheism while they're uh, adolescents. Um, Then uh, I became keen on science. I thought that was the answer. I then got increasingly dissatisfied with mechanistic science because I did biology because I liked animals and plants and I noticed the first thing we did was kill them so in our laboratory classes. So I, I began to question science. Uh, I'd already questioned the Christian religion but now I began to question science and that led me to a more holistic view of science eventually. Um, and, and it was through traveling in India and living in Malaysia for a year, that I first got the idea there could be a different way of looking at the spiritual realm. Then when I got back to Cambridge, I encountered psychedelics, this was around 1970, and that gave me another view of consciousness. Um, And that made me want to explore consciousness itself without drugs, and I took up transcendental meditation because it didn't require belief, it just required experience. I then later, um, several, about five years later, took up a job in India and lived there for on and off for the next 10 years. And um, while I was in India, I was really exploring the Hindu tradition and then the Sufi tradition. And it wasn't really until I'd been in India for several years that the idea crossed my mind. Well, what about Christianity? Um and I found myself drawn back to the Christian tradition. I found a wonderful teacher, Father Bede Griffiths, who had an ashram which was a kind of bridge between the Eastern and Western mystical uh, traditions. And uh, for me, uh, that gave me a, a whole new appreciation of the Christian uh, tradition, but also of course of other traditions like too, like Buddhism and Hinduism and Sufism.
3: So where do you find yourself now are you are you in the christian philosophy at this point or or what's your perspective right now
2: yes i mean i i think it's important to have a, a religious practice not just a spiritual one because spirituality can become rather self-absorbed and self you know individualistic um so what's most natural for me is to be a member of the church of England. So. I go to church on Sundays at my local parish church. I take part in liturgy of the Anglican church. I observe the festivals like Ascension Day and Pentecost and so on. Um, And uh, I like the fact that I can be part of a local community, um, seeing every Sunday go to an ancient sacred place and be part of a tradition uh, which has rites of passage and a whole liturgical tradition um, including in the Anglican Church Choral Evensong, which is my favorite service, um, an evening service with wonderful choral music. So for me, this is an important part of my life. Um, I don't say to everyone you ought to become an Anglican. It works for me, that's my background. And I think for most of us, it makes most sense to reconnect with our ancestral tradition. Uh, If we go after some exotic tradition, Peruvian shamanism or or Siberian shamanic drumming or or, or the Tibetan Buddhism or something, they all have something to offer. But they don't connect us with our ancestors and us in our tradition. And I think there's something very healing about being connected with one's own tradition.
4: I love that you put in the book that, uh, again, with with praying, you recommend people do exactly that, try to connect back with the faith that they were brought up with or that they've practiced. And why is that important, do you think? I mean, obviously, there's the components you just mentioned, but for people listening, why do you recommend that?
2: Well, partly because we're all shaped by the tradition we're brought up in much more than we recognize. I mean, even if you take secular humanists, who are often militant atheists, If you look at the moral system they advocate, it's more or less straight Christianity. Um, They reject Christianity, and yet they're actually really very much part of it. I see most secular humanists and atheists not as real atheists, but as sort of heretical Christians. Um, So uh, we're much more shaped by it than we might think. And it's much better to be consciously in connection with it, or even if we want to abandon it, to recognize how much of it has influenced us to acknowledge what we owe to it um, rather than just trying to deny it or blank it out because that simply makes these habits unconscious. So I think it's just much more natural for people to do that. And I think there's a healing effect of praying in a tradition in which one's ancestors have prayed. For example, if one's a Christian using the Lord's Prayer, which all Christians use, whatever sect or denomination, uh, that's always the central prayer from which I start in my own prayers. Um, and I think by morphic resonance, uh, part of my own theory we've already mentioned, uh, when we do that we come into resonance with our ancestors and that has a, a strengthening effect on us unless we have a very dysfunctional ancestral line. Um, but. Uh, to come into resonance with those who've done something before is well, part of the point of all religious ritual. Um, so uh, this sense of resonance means we feel connected, not only to the spiritual realm, but to our ancestors rooted in, 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 in the past. And We need that. We need a sense of connection. Disconnection is what leads to misery, depression, suicide, etc., alienation. Whereas connection uh, is really what underlies the state of being, well connected uh, and usually happy. Um, it, the more connected we feel, often the happier we feel.
4: I agree. I think it's. A, I think it's an incredibly easy to do thing once people just let go and you know are willing to embrace their past and their ancestors as well as incorporating the the, the new things you know the new practices that, that you recommend so I think it's it's a beautiful thing I've done a form of that myself my whole life so I, I, I know that it works at least for me but mm. I love I, I love that people can they ha, it's a freedom that a lot of people don't expect from uh, especially books on, on spirituality and, 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 and books that cover science. There's, there's a lot of, I think, uh, sometimes incorrect expectations going into it. And I love that mm-hmm. in the book, you give people so much freedom to embrace really themselves and who they already most mm-hmm. likely are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important uh, point. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, fasting. Uh, Because that's something that I think a lot of people have different ideas uh, about when they hear the word and I I think you you have a way of explaining it and the purpose uh, from your perspective that I haven't really heard before but also that I think is the best explanation that I have
2: read at least in a while. Well, first of all, fasting is part of all religious traditions. You know, Christians in Lent, you know, Muslims in Ramadan, Hindus on various days throughout the year, Jews at Yom Kippur. And so it's part of all traditions. Shamanic societies before vision quests and so on. Um, second point is that it's we're physiologically almost required to fast. Our ancestors evolved with intermittent food supplies. No one in our ancestors, going back a few, more than a few generations, had three large meals a day or with snacks in between and sugary <laughs> um, Many studies have shown that among animals, plants, even bacteria and yeast, um, if you have intermittent food periods of fasting or starvation, um, health and longevity are much greater. For example, in experiments with mice, if you feed mice every other day instead of every day, Uh, The mice that have only eaten every other day um, live a year longer, 30% longer than the control mice that eat every day. Um, And we see the results of non-fasting in the obesity epidemic all around us. So I think that fasting is a very valuable practice, both physically and spiritually. I myself do it during Lent as part of the observation of the year's cycle, of the liturgical cycle. I do it in Holy Week for between three and six or seven days, Uh, just water um, and um, fiber to keep the digestive system working. I describe the details in my book. Um, But fasting is psychoactive. It leads to the production of ketone bodies, ketosis. One of them, uh, uh, gamma-beta-hydroxybutyric acid, is very closely related to the neurotransmitter, gamma aminobutyric acid, and GBH, uh, uh, gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. It changes neurotransmitter levels, so it actually changes one's mind, makes it easier to concentrate, to pray, to to meditate, um, and often gives people more vivid dreams. So I think fasting can lead to altered states of consciousness, make it easier to pray and meditate, makes us much more aware of the food and much more appreciative of the food we have, um, and is very, very good for health for most people. There are people it's not good for, for, anorexic people, for example, it's not a good idea, people on multiple medications. So I'm not saying everyone ought to do it, but I, and I'm saying that if you do want to do it, as I show in my book, um, you know, the kinds of people who can advise you if you feel you need advice. But anyway, right. I think fasting is a very, very good practice spiritually and physically for many people. It also has the great advantage of being free.
3: Right, yes, and definitely... Yes, and Honestly, I, I was
4: just going to say, be cautious about fasting, consult exactly. a doctor, and uh, you know, make sure you're in the right shape, like Rupert said. But the, the, the portion of his book, uh, Ways to Go Beyond, where he talks about fasting, I think are incredible to read, even if you yourself uh, can't fast.
3: <laughs> so, Rupert, I know we're going to dive, we're continuing to dive into the practices that you feature in your book. And one of the things, but one of the things that you mentioned is that these are scientifically measurable. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Um, Since the 1970s, scientists have been looking at the effects of spiritual practices. The first one that was studied in detail is meditation. And um, studies on meditation have shown that it has quite measurable physiological effects. Lower blood pressure slows down the heartbeat, um, reduces stress hormone levels, reduces the activity of the default mode network in the brain, which I already mentioned. Um, and has measurable effects on people's well-being. It protects against depression, for example, which is why here in Britain, um, if you go to a psychiatrist with mild or moderate depression, the psychiatrist can actually prescribe medication as opposed to antidepressant drugs. And the reason our National Health Service backs that is it's been shown to work, and also, of course, it's cheaper. So um, the... The, and there's lots of studies now on brain scans of people meditating. And this is probably the practice being investigated most, partly because uh, meditators are literally sitting targets for researchers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so uh, there's no doubt, whatever, that meditation has these beneficial, scientifically measurable effects. And one reason that quite a number of atheists feel happy with meditation is because it's so thoroughly scientifically proved that it works. Uh, For most people, nothing works for everyone all the time. Um, But the other practices have been studied too. Fasting, of course, has measurable physiological effects, as I've just said, and that's been quite widely studied. Um, Music, singing and chanting, which are part of all religious traditions, um, chanting psalms, singing hymns in church, um, all tribes have singing and chanting um, it's in all religions, um, have measurable effects on the physiology of the body, lowering stress levels, um, bringing communities into cohesion, literally into cohesion, because not only do you breathe together when you're singing a hymn, for example, you will breathe at the same time, um, in between the lines and in between verses, Uh, but um, also it tends to make people come into physiological synchrony. Even heartbeats become more synchronous through chanting and singing together. Now, again, these are measurable effects. And many people find through singing together um, that their stress levels go down. And again, measurably, cortisol levels, the stress hormone levels in the blood, decrease. Um, And they feel happier, more connected, more in the flow. Um, So all of these and measurable benefits and the reason in my book uh, ways to go beyond and why they work and the previous book science and spiritual practices um, i show, i combine these is because i myself both do these practices and as a scientist find the scientific studies helpful it's an area where science and religion are not in conflict the usual popular scenario you know they're against each other they come together in a complementary way that actually Enhances both.
3: Now you talk about you, you surprised me with the spiritual side of sports as being one of the one of the spiritual practices. And you know, I think uh, I always I, you always hear about flow, but I never really thought of it as a spiritual thing. Tell me about that.
2: Well, a lot of people those um, have spiritual experiences through sports. I mean, this comes out through interviews that I've done through books on this, through Michael Murphy, who founded the Esselin Institute, um, uh, uh, has done a lot of work on the spiritual side of sports. Um, And for a lot of people, one of the reasons they do the sports is because they have this sense of not just flow, but a sense of a connection with some consciousness greater than their own. They go into altered states of consciousness. I was talking to the world high wire free solo champion in london recently a young german who walks on high wires high lines um over thousand foot drops with no security harness
3: wow
2: (laughs) (laughs) of course i asked him you know why he does it and His answer was very clear. He said that for him, it gives him an intense spiritual experience that's better than anything else in his life. And that's why he risks his life for this experience. And if you think about it, um, the main point of most spiritual practices is to come into the present. Be here now, as Alan Watts used to say. Spiritual practice is about coming into the present. That's what meditation is about. It's what singing and chanting are about. But it is what sports do. If you're engaged in a sport, you know, you're playing tennis, you've got to get that ball back. You're in the middle of a football game and the ball's coming your way. Um, And especially if you're on a, a high line with a thousand foot drop beneath you and no safety harness. Yes. You have to be. In the present. And so I think the reason that sports have this effect on so many people, in fact, I think that below the radar, this is the most common way in which people in the modern world actually experience uh, uh, the sense of presence, the this, this spiritual sense of connection that comes through being in the present, through sports, they shut down the default mode network quicker than meditation, and millions more people. Um, you know, about 18 million americans meditate but more than that take part in sports activities of various kinds I and think almost, uh,
4: 50 million watch the super bowl i mean just even the participation of community of, of, of watching the events too has to i mean that's a connection uh mechanism for a lot of people
2: absolutely it's a coming into the present you're so absorbed in the present through watching it and if you're with supporters you know in the actual if you're live at the event, surrounded by supporters, your emotions go up and down with theirs. There's this sense of connection. And what about the spiritual practices are about connection, uh, whereas misery is about disconnection. And and sports provide a form of connection um, and being in the present, um, even vicariously through being a spectator One's still participating in that sense of connection and presence.
4: Well, I know here in, in, in the United States, uh, one of my best friends, we've been friends since we were children, uh, she calls uh, her football team when she goes to see it, she says it's a religious experience. That's a very common phrase with people who love sports here. They say it's a religious experience to be at the game. And I don't think that's accidental based on what you just said. It's their, their physiology. Something knows that, that it is a, a, a somewhat uh, a connected experience, even if maybe they don't look at it consciously that way. They're unconscious
2: yes exactly and 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 I think that um, in our modern secular societies, sports have actually taken on this religious dimension for a lot of people that 's one reason I wanted to write about it in my book because I think it 's completely unacknowledged side of sports and in the past, in the ancient world the this connection was explicit you know the the Olympic Games in ancient Greece at Olympia. Um, were dedicated to the god 's use, and they were, they were a religious festival um, in japan it 's quite clear that the things like the martial arts have a spiritual dimension and um, Zen and the Art of archery was a classic book from the Japanese tradition, um, showing that it 's not just building up muscles and, and, and brute force and skill right. it's about being part of a flow, a process of flow. Um, and in the martial arts, you, not only are you flowing in your own movements, you're feeling the flow of energy in your opponent. And it's a kind of dance, a kind of flow. I mean, it's very different from some Western sports like American football that are, tend to be based more on the brute force model. <laughs> um, but um, in the East, the, the, this dimension's always been explicit.
3: Yeah. I have to say that uh, I did try the higher wire act the other day, and that that was not for me. I did not get into flow for that.
2: No, I think the point about the flow experience is what's so interesting about it is that you can't get into it unless you have a sufficient level of skill. And the skill level has to be enough, so you're not worrying about getting it wrong or, um, or
3: falling into the pit, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, exactly. So the point is that all sports require a, a level of skill because you need some skill to get in the flow. And that's true in, in music as well. Music is also something where you get into the flow and has this spiritual dimension. And you have to have a sufficient level. You're just less starting out learning the piano. You're not going to get into that state of flow. But If you've achieved mastery of a particular piece or of the riffs in jazz or something you can get into a state of flow, which again has a kind of spiritual dimension to it.
3: Well, we only oh, have I a couple totally of great. minutes. We only have a couple of minutes left. I did want to touch a little bit on animals and what we could learn from animals as a spiritual practice.
2: Well, uh, brief, very briefly, I think one of the things that animals can teach us is that they are in the present. They don't have a default mode network in the same way we do. Their minds are not taken up with worries, anxieties, fears, fantasies. Um, and I think one of the reasons that people like keeping dogs, cats, and other animals and riding horses is that they bring you into the present. Um, if a cat's sitting on your lap and purring and you 're stroking it, the cat's totally in the present. It does not trying to be somewhere else or think about it 's just being in the present and it can bring you into the present with it. And that's one of the gifts they can give us, I think, and one of the reasons so many people go to the time, trouble, and expense of keeping animals, which in many ways are a nuisance. But what they give us (laughs) is something, a sense of connection, and a sense, and bring us into the present, which is a kind of spiritual gift.
3: And you mentioned that they have a greater, there's a greater sensitivity than perhaps humans have.
2: Oh, yes. Well, they certainly are more psychically sensitive and more sensitive to emotions and pay more attention to their surroundings very often. Um, And that, again, is something from which we can learn, if only a kind of humility, uh, that actually animals are better than us at lots of things. We like to think of ourselves as better than everything else in the whole creation, the only truly conscious beings, etc. But we're better in some ways. We're better at making computers than any other animal species. And and in, in lots of other ways, but they're better than us in all sorts of uh, ways, both in this- I live in
4: Los Angeles and my cats, every time there's an earthquake, I know it's coming because somehow, I mean, it is the wildest thing. My parrot and my two cats will, they act very strange and my cats always go out in the backyard. They leave the house. And last year we had two, the two biggest earthquakes in 100 years happened a day apart. And that period right before, they ran outside, and I knew, I was like, oh, we're going to have an earthquake, and then we, they, they have a very specific behavior. It's, it's helpful to know an earthquake's coming because my cat goes out into this weird spot. Yes,
2: definitely. I mean, I've done some research on earthquake and tsunami prediction by animals, and actually, if this were done on a large scale, I think we could have effective earthquake warning systems. This could not just be interesting, but also very, very oh, useful.
3: So do you have any particular advice? We're, we've got about a minute left before we have to close things up and I wish we had a lot more time because there's so much to dive into. What are some tools that you would suggest immediately for our listeners to, to go into to reach that, that connection?
2: Well, I mean, in my, each of my books, I suggest seven different practices and some work better for some than others And for people who are already into sport then just appreciating more the way in which it can bring you into the present. For people who've got animals, just paying attention to the way they bring you into the present. For people who pray, um, uh, uh, appreciating the way they connect you both uh, with the spiritual beings to which you're praying and the daily needs you're praying about. And also the bigger vision that that you can pray about, the, the, the hopes for not just oneself, but humanity and the earth. Um, so I think the first thing and simplest thing is for people to appreciate more what they're already doing because most people are already doing something and um, one can learn, if one thinks about it a little bit more, one can get more out of it by becoming more aware of what one's already doing.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much, Rupert, for being on, being on uh, Big Universe with us. It's been great to have you on. Thank you.
2: Very good to be with you both.
3: Is there a website uh, that we can get more information about uh, about you, Rupert?
2: Yes, sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org, O-R-G.
3: Wonderful. It's a beautiful
4: book, Rupert. It's the ways to go beyond and why they work. It's it's just a stunningly
3: beautiful book. I Absolutely. Good. Make sure you get that book. And for more information about Royce Christian, go to roycechristian.com and check out his book, Scripting the Life You Want. I've got premium video courses and I help create them on my website, com. I hope you join me there. Thanks everybody. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe.
4: Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.